the more that I understood where I was, yeah, where I was critical about my own identity and, and kind of understanding where that came from and then actually understanding that that was external <laughs> and that was cultural because of growing up in the West, understanding that at the same time as just being just generally more critical um, of the things that I was consuming. I think that just in combination was like, oh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> really? Wait, and then and then I think, yeah, because, you know, like I said, I continue to have conversations with my own family um, about you know, their lived experiences in China. Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Ileana Chan, and I'm here with community organizer, Scottish, Chinese person, say or son. <laughs> Ileana. Hi. Um, so today we're going to be discussing, I think a lot of the, the reports coming out of China, we're not going to specifically be discussing the reports, but we're going to be discussing the dynamics of it and how we um, as Chinese, British, um, you're Scottish, I'm British, Malaysian, whatever, wherever I'm from, um, how we're sort of like digesting the news, how we're sort of, you know, navigating through the propaganda um, and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, yeah, and actually this conversation sort of came about because you um, made a really good point in one of our previous conversations, I suppose, about um, your own sino sinophobia <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and how you've evolved your thinking about um, thinking about China and I realized like I'm exactly I have a same not maybe not the same evolution we'll see but I have an evolution too from how I think about China and what I think about China now mm -hmm. etc yeah and I think also uh, on the evolution part I think uh, some of it is internal um, you know, just through reassessing what we're shown and seen. <clears throat> so not just necessarily related to China, right, but just I think overall noticing how Western media uh, has um, portrayed and um, talked about lots of different issues, in, domestic issues, right, say, for example, like Black Lives right. Matter, um, you know, uh, political things that are happening in the West. Um, and then also then seeing how that has been applied to the reporting on China. And I think also for me, um, this is really important to talk about because I think that the rise in anti-China propaganda and xenophobia in our media has actually grown exponentially at quite an alarming rate. Um, whereas, you know, I think previously you would see a few negative headlines about China. Whereas I think now, um, every reporting that comes out has a very, I would say, aggressive uh, anti-China bent. And obviously this is incredibly relevant for, and I think for us, maybe mostly relevant for uh, Chinese um, people or, you know, probably affects all East and Southeast Asian people as well. Anyone that can look Chinese, essentially. Um, and, you know, in the and it also, I mean, yeah, but it also really affects anyone who maybe doesn't like war or death or destruction <laughs> yeah and, uh, yeah yeah i just think in the wake of covid as well it's, it's hyper even more hyper um relevant right like you have this uh on the face of it you have you know western governments saying that yes we hate racism and you know we should be anti-racist and um you know it's it's a problem you know all this asian hate crimes uh but then on the other side of it their foreign policy is actually 
incredibly aggressive uh, and yeah. anti-China in a political I mean, way. Yeah, I mean, I think you can really see from the Alcus, Alcus, what a lovely name, um, sort of, what would you say, rollout, I would say, presentation of the Alcus, uh, what is it, an alliance? They're calling it a def defense a security pact, <laughs> but why are they, where's the, where's the threat? And I suppose the implicit threat with Alcus is China's the threat, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's the way that they're sort of covering that, I think, um, has made it way more, I think, I'm not, but again, I'm not sure if I'm more aware or they're just being so much more blatant about it. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably a little both. bit both. Yeah, A little yeah. both. I mean, mm -hmm. that 60-minute um, Australian warmongering thing about China, I think in the first 60 seconds already, they're like basically drumming up the war, the war drums. War with China. It sounds unthinkable, but according to many experts, the countdown may be on. China's President Xi Jinping is shaping up to the West like never before. And just last week, a major new military alliance was announced between the US, Australia and the UK to counter Chinese aggression in the Pacific. The way that they're framing China um, as a threat is mm -hmm. so scary in that, and yet they can't even point to one concrete example of China's um, instigation or escalation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really important for us to recognize because um, you know, I think we're, we're much younger, obviously, uh, when <clears throat> the Iraq war situation was brewing uh, and, you know, they were laying the foundation for that invasion. Um, and, you know, I think we saw as well at that time, right, the media really ramping up Islamophobia um, and right. really, you know, setting the course. And I think that, um, you know, it's, I think it's important to make comparisons and I think it's important to draw parallels where they're relevant. I don't think, I hope we're, we probably won't get into, you know, kind of what about ism, right? Because I don't think um, it, you know, we need to, to do that. Um, but I think there are important parallels and, and just like I, calling out kind of, I think the hypocrisy as well in, in the way that we're, in the way that the media and the governments are approaching these issues or talking about these issues. Um, so it's more about, I think what we can try and do is like recognize where those are coming from and recognize it when we see it so that we can be objective or as objective as we can about our, our thinking about these issues. Um, and then also, yeah, just, I think challenging the mindset that, it, you know, we need to be interventionalist um, in order to be, in order to care about, you know, other, uh, other countries or, you know, things that are happening in other areas. Um, so it, I think it's more about as well, you know, once you, have tried to understand where the issues are, you know, how do we show acts of solidarity versus, you know, going in there and yeah. making changes? You know? I mean, I think that that's something that we have to acknowledge is while some people may actually have genuinely good intentions, there is no case of invasion in my lifetime, or maybe I'm just completely ignorant to it. And I doubt that would be the case because if there was a case of a single invasion interventionalist project by the US or the UK that actually did good for that country, we would 
know about it. We would definitely know about it. That would not be a secret, right? Mm -hmm. That would be something that they would be telling us over and over again, and yet they haven't. So when people think of, um, because I've heard, for example, in Ethiopia, um, people wanting a foreign, some people uh, saying that they want foreign interference. But I'm just like, in what case has that ever, ever been the reason that the US or the UK would invade a country anyway, and actually has had an effect of something good? Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because yeah, there's two things that immediately come to mind. One is uh, I came across this article, this opinion piece in the New York Times actually, I think that was written back in 2002 or 2003, uh, and it essentially tried to argue that uh, military intervention is more is a more effective humanitarian effort than actual humanitarian efforts on the ground. Uh, and I think uh, it's interesting because we are often presented with a false dichotomy or a false choice, a binary choice, um, whether that is our political action or, you know, like our identity, actually. Um, it's always this, it's always this messaging of it's, it's either war or we let evil people be evil. Um, and I think it's also interesting as well when people, uh, situation uh, last year, two years ago in Brazil and Venezuela, um, you know, people will, in Cuba even, right, people will call upon the fact that, you know, the people are quite rightly desperate um, for change, uh, desperate for um, you know, basically an ability to, to live their lives properly. Um, and then, again, creating this false dichotomy or this false choice of, well, the only way that we can help them or support them is through intervention, through sanctions or through military intervention or through some sort of forceful violence. Um, and that is just simply not true. And, you know, uh, and I think it's also might be interesting to point out as well, like, this is what happens when we talk about um, domestic policy as well, right? So for example, um, if we talk about violence in, in marginalized communities, uh, the, the answer is often, well, you know, especially in the US, right? Well, the black community wants, wants more police in their neighborhoods. And it's like, well, actually, if you ask those community members what they actually want, they want safety, they want security, they want resources um, available so that they can actually mitigate violence on their own, but they're not presented with those, right? The government has never offered those options. So in the face of nothing, uh, nothing from the government, of course, they're going to say, well, I want something. And if that one thing is police, then give me that, you know? And I think that's, that's, been, um, that's been shown to, if you actually ask them nuanced questions, they will give you nuanced answers and nuanced um, uh, solutions. But if your question is only, do you want us to do nothing or do you want us to intervene? Right. Yeah. Then how is that, how is that a, real, a real question? How is that a real choice? Um, so yeah, I think it's quite easy to, to hang your hat on, on that option if that's the only one that's available. Um, but yeah, I think most people maybe don't think much further than, well, is that the only choice? And is, is that the right choice? Well, as if it's presented in this way of like, we're gonna come in to save you and that's the only choice we're giving you. Yeah, but the, the truth is it's not, it's not ever that way, right? They're not coming in to save, to save you. And also just the idea of, I think the other thing too is that human, humanitarian aid thing has been so, well, I guess maybe all the time, but I just was not aware of it before. Just has been corrupted in such a way that it's hard to also trust. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, humanitarian yeah. aid. And I think um, this is part of uh, the larger context, right, that we have in terms of how how the West perceives itself in relation to the global South. Um, and, and, you know, this is part of uh, everything we're talking about has obviously a larger geopolitical context. Um, it has historical context. It has so much, you know, cultural context as well. Um, it's not necessarily based on our own interpretation or how we perceive things. But I think part of that is also our ability to really decolonize our minds uh, and our mindset, right? Because I think there are many people in the West who have the who have the capacity and the interest in kind of these geopolitical issues that are happening abroad. But the initial instinct is always to, to go and save them or to donate to charity, right? Whereas I think um, that what needs to happen and what we need to start pivoting towards is how do we enable and how do we um, support people on the ground um, in those countries, in those regions that are already doing the work of, um, mm -hmm. you know, trying to gain a legitimacy themselves, right? Or trying to, to gain um, collective power themselves. Uh, and so I think our best efforts are in amplifying those people that are already doing the work versus any sort of intervention or any sort of coming in, swooping in. Uh, and I think that mindset really, really needs to change. Um, but yeah, I think say, yeah the, the savior, the Western savior trope. So kind of in trying to arm myself with knowledge, or whatever, I'm trying to do more research on China because of like we were talking about our own maybe biases or prejudices etc but one of the so one of the things that um i read um is that poverty alleviation report mm -hmm. by tricontinental and i think what's kind of fascinating about the report is just the very very different mindset of chinese people um mm -hmm. you know of the chinese in china not 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 just ethnic chinese people mm -hmm. yeah, and absolutely. um yeah and uh one of the things you said there then was how do we help the people in these countries, right? How do we help people in other countries? Like say, um, and it, it makes this, this report makes a really interesting distinction that rather than depend on like NGOs or um, charitable groups that I think in the West, we do tend to um, very much so, especially in the US and I'm sure in the UK as well. Um, there's a huge emphasis on whatever the, the, whatever the government is not covering, all these like charitable foundations sort of have to fill in the gaps for that. And in China, it's kind of the opposite mm -hmm. mentality. Yeah. So that's like, yeah. Yeah. And I personally don't believe that the state is the solution to society's problems. Um, I, you know, that's, that's a whole different topic, right, uh, about, you know, what, what do borders and what do states um, actually do for its own people? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have lots of questions about the legitimacy of, you know, saying that, you know, we, we, need, we need states to exist and we need them to, to provide these services. Um, but I think in the current reality, right, you know, states do exist and there's material changes that can be made or there's at least things that the state states can focus on to actually improve the lives of its citizens um, that most states are just not doing anyway. So yeah, so I think that there's that that part, uh, you know, I'm definitely not wholesale endorsing right, I mean, that you leave the state. Uh, the other part of that too is, um, yeah, and I think uh, people will often, and again, this is part of decolonializing our minds and um, kind of rethinking 
what uh, help and support actually means, right? Because if you think about philanthropy, if you think about um, non-government organizations, right? So those definitely started, or at least in the US and I think UK too, have quite radical roots to begin with, right? Because they were addressing the needs of marginalized people, underserved people that weren't being addressed mm -hmm. by the government and the state. So that's how they started. But there is often this kind of um, veil around the, the fact that it's not really a solution, right? So if you think about the funding that charities and NGOs receive, um, it's at the behest of wealthy individuals or, you know, um, special interest groups or governments, right, that are, um, that are giving them this funding. So they have to actually think about, because they're beholden to their funders, they have to think about what their interests are and where they're focused on right. and you know if we're talking and about not all of them are completely legitimate too like, absolutely yeah so we've got you've got we, we're talking about such a huge range of different um organizations and and like you're saying they're funded for different reasons etc and also i mean some of them would be some of them their aims would be to even bring the issue to the public forefront and to change law so it's kind of like you know what mm -hmm. I mean? There, there's a sort of an intersection with that as well. It's it's just, it's such a, it's a huge, and someone say industry as it well. It is an industry, yeah. Yeah, so. Because if you, yeah, and if you also think about, you know, if we believe, right, there are universal basic human rights, right, you know, shelter, mm -hmm. education, food, healthcare. Um, if we believe that those are universal, then why are they being advanced um, based on the interests of, specific individuals or right. organizations with the funding to provide those, right? If, if we believe they're universal, then they should be available universally, not because someone is interested in providing that to people. So would you say that that's where you would like, if we believe they're universal, um, therefore the state or our governments, that should be part of our- Yeah, in the, yeah, exactly. In the current system that we have set up, right? If, if we want to believe that the purpose of the government is to right help its citizens thrive and be functioning then absolutely right those if those are universal then they should be provided by the state um but yeah. i don't think in an ideal world that that is necessarily the right uh, approach the um the but right, as, as i mean it but it also brings me to the other point of it was like reading that poverty alleviation report and seeing how they how china is looking at poverty like sort of like holistically was mm -hmm. really first of all it was really eye-opening because they really do cover a lot of different things like um but it you know and i kind of want to get into what those things are um but i would say that being part of the west being born here and everything and having like a very skeptical view of our governments and what they can do and politicians i think that was like the the biggest difference was mm -hmm. that I'm not sure if there is that trust here. Like, I don't feel this amazing trust for my government <laughs> to get things done, um, yeah. you know, for the good for of good our reason. people. <laughs> yeah, for a good reason. Um, so that's what really struck me about that report was that the poverty alleviation um, system or program really had to be done with the cooperation of the people. The people had to believe in the project and in their government mm -hmm. in order to do that because people were being sent to like extremely poor areas um, as officials to, to help um, different communities and had to live in like particularly difficult environments themselves. So it is like a level, 
which is not to say that people don't do that in the West, but I'm just saying like, there's a level of trust there and cooperation. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's easier to achieve wide scale change if you have a very centralized source of power uh, who gets to make all of the policy decisions. Um, and whether, whether the citizens agree to it or not, um, it's very easy for them to roll these things out, right? There's no forum for people to, to disagree or to, um, or to say that actually they don't want this to happen. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, and I think part of that is also, right, when you see, when they see the results of these programs, then clearly poverty, as you say, has been alleviated to a massive degree in comparison to any other country in recent history. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the results are there, which obviously helps the reinforce this idea for the people, right, that the government is doing the right thing. But I think I think it's difficult to say how on board people are <laughs> um, well, when they don't really have a choice. Well, I, I that was interesting was that there was this talk that I was listening to by Vijay Prashad, you know him, right? Um, in the, I think the People's Forum in New York. Mm -hmm. And he did talk about like how um, certain Chinese intellectual talked, intellectuals talked about China having like seven thoughts, seven thought schools, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so again, he's sort of like bringing up the point, which I think part of my xenophobia is like this idea of like, yeah, Chinese just don't have any say in anything. And so they just sort of follow along. Whereas like knowing that 1.4 billion people can't possibly agree on everything. So there are like factions of different thoughts and a sort of evolving, um, even when they come up, I think the difference is when they come up with a policy, it gets done, it gets implemented and then you know, but actually coming up with that policy has more discussion than maybe we're privy to outside. And I'm like really fascinated with how they sort of come up with their policies and their thinking, you know, when when they must have disparate ideas as well. Yeah, I think I think it's, yeah, I think you bring up a lot of points that relate to Chinese culture, which I think that is not visible to um, Westerners, even honestly, even Chinese people who grew up in the West or who were born in the West, they're not privy to how Chinese people actually think and act culturally. Um, and, you know, I, I came to the UK when I was seven. Um, so I grew up a little bit in China. Uh, I have family there, obviously. And, you know, I still feel culturally quite connected to China in some ways. So, and, you know, I, and I often have discussions with my own family um, members in China and my parents out here about uh, Chinese culture and the perception of the government because you know and it's it, yeah it is funny because I think the West tends to infantilize Chinese people right like oh right. yeah you're obviously they're obviously mindless like you know they have no access to the internet well it's like well no Chinese people know how to access the internet young Chinese <laughs> people do talk about politics young Chinese people do understand uh, things that are going on um, the, I think the example that people always like to use is, uh, you know, how in China, like young people don't know about Tiananmen Square or like don't talk about it. Right. Like, well, they're not going to talk to Western journalists about Tiananmen Square, like uh, probably. Um, also, you're not entitled to know every single person's uh, opinion, private opinions about, you know, something that happened uh, in China. It's so funny too, like when I was studying, I studied Chinese in China. <laughs> 
for a year and uh my Chinese is still terrible however um I remember one of our Chinese teachers talking about Tiananmen Square like not not in a historical um not in a historical uh, lesson way mm -hmm. she, she just talked about her own experience about that um, night or day you know um sneaking out of a window etc like it was really interesting to me that she was talking about that I mean openly obviously we were just we just like uh, living there it's not we weren't journalists or anything we weren't like some yeah. U.S. <laughs> official um so but yeah it's it's such a different it is such a different mindset in the midst of it versus like you're saying the perception yeah. of it being like it's just there's silence around it exactly no about it. and and yeah and you know to also your point about people uh, agreeing with the government or uh, being or supporting the decisions that they make right and, and that also makes sense culturally as well if you think about the type of poverty that china yeah. experienced um you know well up into the 80s for like for decades you know um i have personal family stories of like starvation and death and you know okay. um especially during the cultural revolution like horrific like acts of like political violence as well so coming up from that um and the government is saying we're going to ensure that you don't starve after 45 million people did starve in china um over like mm -hmm. more like a 10-year period or something um so yeah if you have a government that says i'm going to make sure that you no, no one starves again and we're going to create infrastructure. And again, it's not to say that at any at every point that you know they've done this perfectly, right? There's been a ton of corruption in in Chinese governments, especially in rural areas, because it's such a massive country, right? Mm. It's not it's not the same There's the same implementation. <laughs> yeah, the same implementation doesn't happen uh, in the cities as they do in uh, in very rural areas. So there was right. a massive cra crackdown in uh, in corruption across all levels uh, in China, which hasn't ever happened in the West. I feel like. So, um, so yeah, you, you know, because yeah, have... then the Flint, um, if the Flint, you know, the Flint executives, they would all be, well, you know, I don't know, executives, but yeah, they would all be maybe dead. Right. Well, maybe <laughs> at least, you know, made, made to, uh, yeah, least, some sort of level least, of accountability. Yeah, some sort of level. Welcome. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and again, not, not to say, you know, anyone's endorsing uh, the Chinese way of yeah ex executing uh, people for corruption, um, but yeah, if you if you tell the people right who have gone through trauma and starvation to say look we're gonna lift you out of poverty and then they see the results of that, um, then of course people are going to be supportive of the government in some ways. Um, but that's not to say that I, I think the majority of Chinese people will blindly defend the CCP at every given any given opportunity. Um, mm. I don't think it's like that, um, but you can't tell a people who have uh, made or who have experienced massive strides in their material conditions being improved that, oh, you're just a, a pawn of the state and you have no idea what's going on, uh, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I think this falls into, right, the kind of the Western, I would say, uh, government's way of telling us that they care about our material conditions, that they want to lift people out of poverty. Uh, versus the actual reality of that, which is it hasn't happened, right? The U.S. operated under I, trickle down for you know oh, decades. Yeah, I mean, which is just you know that's been debunked, right, several times yeah. over. Yeah, but, of course. But I would even say that the U.S. isn't even bothering anymore to put out that message mm -hmm. of poverty 
alleviation the way like Xi Jinping did actually I think it was 2019 his mm -hmm. address you know the New Year's address where he was like in 2020 we will eradicate poverty I think yeah. it was 2019 or 2018 and um, a lot of Chinese citizens like this uh this mindset like this like you know right. uh, I think the government policy uh which has been affectionately shorthandedly like you know discussed among Chinese citizens as we'll get you out of poverty first we'll worry about human rights later <laughs> um and and you know I there's obviously appeal uh to of that kind of like thinking right like yes the the, the most urgent thing is poverty I don't know if citizens really care about like political prisoners or people mm -hmm. disappearing because of political reasons or you know even famous people disappearing because of you know a tax evasion or things like that right yeah. what is like, what is materially um, important to you? funding yeah. thing mm -hmm. um but yes exactly but that does i mean and, and i think that it's very hard for us to know out of, outside what is the scope of political prisoners etc but it does sort of make it because i've been thinking about this a lot because sometimes when you do talk about China and it's again this Western imperialist mindset sort of like where we look at other countries and think oh we know better let's figure out how to fix that country so we do tend to be like well China doesn't have human rights it doesn't have this or it doesn't have that it doesn't have freedom of speech um but there's a there's a lot of people in our countries that don't know for example about um our political prisoners mm. you know um, the fact that, like, I think it was Trump, I think, that drone struck to Americans, killed them outright. So it's like because they were apparently apparently family members of like a terrorist or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the fact that it's a that can happen in the US, that can happen in the UK, it's not we don't know that much about it. It's not really covered by the media, etc. I can imagine someone in China, you know, similar thing could also be the case. You might not know about those things either because you're thinking about different aspects of right. your life. Yeah, and the, the CCP don't exactly make it clear. Right? Yeah, neither does uh, the US government, happen. right? Yeah. So that's yeah. the thing is like, I think the whataboutism, I think and like you brought up a good point. It's always sort of brought up like the whataboutism, what about this, what about that? And, but it is quite relevant. If we're talking about, how do we help other people in other countries? But if we cared about human rights, we would really be talking about what do we do here? Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight the gaslighting of that messaging that the Western states perform as well, right? It, they say that interventionalism is due to, you know, trying to uphold our systems right. of democracy, our values of democracy and human rights and, you know, freedom of speech. Um, and that is always the message that is proposed. Um, but then when you, again, if you look at actual results, that has rarely ever been achieved. In fact, we often always make things worse. So it's, uh, it's this gaslighting of, you know, our, their own citizens saying, we're here to help those other countries. Um, but actually in practice, that's clearly not the agenda because that's never at the forefront. And then also there are always a lot more um, obvious commercial interests, uh, capitalist interests that are at play, right? Or, you know, geopolitical interests that are at play that are much more evident because, yeah, to your point, then, you know, if it was really about all those things, then why are we only targeting regions or countries where politically 
Right. They're perceived as a threat or politically um, they actually have resources that are advantageous to the corporations that operate within Western countries. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think we to, to challenge them on on their efficacy in helping destabilize regions that they've destabilized, uh, restabilized, um, I think is honestly not even the point that they're, they're trying to make, right? It's like, actually, yeah, we, we can condemn them for that, but actually they don't really care about that. And that's just what they want us to talk about and to focus on versus the arms deals that they make, you know, versus the, you know, ignoring Saudi Arabia and uh, all the questionable um, things that with solid evidence, right, um, that they're doing to its own citizens. So it's, I think the sooner we accept that it's not actually about caring about those other citizens, the sooner we'll stop wasting our breath in calling it out because I don't think the US or the UK are actually interested in, in any of that. Yeah, I mean, it is preposterous to suddenly care so much about the Muslims in um, Xinjiang. Like all of a sudden, the US cares so much about Muslims. It just, it sort of beggars belief. But people do that over and over again. And I mean, I just, I do listen to quite a few um, US media outlets, uh, news outlets, and they can't say, they just cannot say China without saying genocide. It's like now it's just such a given. Yeah, so the other report that we we both read is the, the Xinjiang report uh, mm -hmm. from, from Italy. Uh -huh. So let's back up a little bit and talk about in what places do you find that, you know, we've talked about the evolution of our own xenophobia. How and where, you know, where did you start? What changed that? And where are you yeah. now? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think I've always been uh, politically or interested in geopolitics for whatever reason since I was a teenager. And was quite argumentative um, as a child as well. And I think um, in, it's definitely been a part of now, now we're having a more personal conversation, uh, right, about my, my personal identity growing up. I think it's not just xenophobia, right, but there's a lot of internalized racism as well mm -hmm. that I think for, especially I think British, um, East and Southeast Asians, because we are such a, such a minority, is very different when I experienced going to the US, right? Like, you know, you, you do have a community that's already there and there's ways that you can develop that. Um, but here, and from what I've been hearing as well from other East and Southeast Asian people that I've met in the UK is that you are often one or two of the only, you know, East or Southeast Asian people um, in your town or your school. So growing up with that and also the whole model minority myth, right? You do really want to make your Asianness as invisible as possible. And especially when I was younger, on the path of righteousness, right? Everything, and you know, I want to be a lawyer. So yeah, anything human rights related, right, was was immediately uh, something that I would have an opinion on or be interested in. And you, and you grew up in Scotland? I grew up in Scotland, yeah. And then it's interesting because like my parents would often complain about xenophobia in news reporting in the media, like in the BBC News or you know, something they would see online. And then, you know, we would have not like arguments, but, you know, I would definitely say, like, well, CCP are, are evil and you know, all this stuff. You know, there's no human rights. And then you're just parroting, right, you know, what you see in the mainstream media. And I think at that time as well, I did very little to question the intentions of mainstream media. Right. And I think even now, especially now, there's this disconnect between what supposedly liberal news outlets are, are putting out uh, versus actual reality and 
the fact that they're, I don't think we can really describe any mainstream media as liberal or, or remotely progressive in the, in the US or the UK. So um, yeah, so there's definitely a lot of uh, just parroting what I thought was liberal media, um, right? Well, they must be objective, it's the BBC. Um, and then obviously, you know, just through, through uh, learning about or reframing my own identity, honestly, and that's taken a lot of work, which it always does, I think, for um, East and Southeast Asians. Uh, yeah, so doing a lot of work, recognizing my own internalized racism, internalized xenophobia, um, just being a lot more critical over the last few years of everything I've been seeing, especially as I think me and a lot of people have become much more politically aware, or at least trying to figure out this way of <laughs> this way of living is really not working for most of us. Why is it not working? Um, and then kind of really understanding the root of that and then not seeing that reflected in mainstream media at all, right? Mm -hmm. Having to rely on alternate news sources, having to rely on independent journalists, having to rely on Twitter or Instagram for real objective or objective information. Um, yeah, so applying that lens to, to everything, I think, is important. So it's not about, you know, we're talking about China right now and hopefully people can... Um, apply some of the things that we've learned uh, to China, but really it's not about just China, right? It's about how we, yeah. the lens that we use um, to approach all issues that we think are issues or things that we want to try and help solve. Yeah, to me, it's not, apart from yes, being ethnically Chinese, having been to China several times, many, many times in my life, etc. It's not this, this, um, this push against propaganda is not about China because it's, the thing that disturbs me the most, and and like you said, I'm a little older than you, so the Iraq War, the second one, <laughs> I mean the yeah. the 9/11 one, uh, I think that was for me the first um, when I saw George Bush's uh, speech on the Beacon of Freedom, it just so rang not true to me, and I mm -hmm. think that was the first time in my life that I was suddenly um, really like, oh, CNN, BBC. These are not trusted sources. But yeah, suddenly I was like reading the New York Times and going, this is so biased, the way they've reported this. Yeah. Um, so that was probably for me, like the beginning. And it's just this, the thing that's so frustrating about it is that it's just ramped up to like a hundred, it feels like with China, um, maybe that's my own sensitivity, thinking mm -hmm. it has been ramped up, but there's such a lack of, even conversation around like, for example, the Xinjiang thing. It's like, it's just a given that China is genocidal, you know? Um, so there's no pushback at all. I mean, apart from this Italian report, and then there was a Swedish report before that, there's mm -hmm. just been no real reporting on this yeah. issue, there's even though, um, like what was interesting about this report, this uh, the Italian one was that they, I mean, it's not even like there's they they pick out certain things that I should know. For example, the the second letter to UNCHR yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Um, the UN saying that 23 Muslim countries are going against the American claims of genocide against China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I mean kind of I knew think, that, but yeah, I think that part is is where like my cynicism on state led statements or comments on this I, I draw a limit there right because you know they it's I think Saudi Arabia Turkey those countries you know uh, Erdogan right from um from Turkey 
defending uh, right China's policies and saying that, you know, all, all Uyghurs in China can live peacefully. And, you know, for someone who has such a horrible track record of human rights in his own country. Uh, and also is quite aligned with the US. So that's kind of strange to me why. Yeah. Why so like, come out. Yeah. so I'm reading endorsement from countries like Saudi Arabia and Turkey who also have, you know, uh, economic ties to China or economic interests in China. Uh, you know, I, I personally don't take too much stock into that because I don't think that those countries typically care about Muslims in other countries, right? The way that they also exploit, you know, um, Muslims from other countries in their own countries. So, you know, to me, that's a little bit hollow, but absolutely, I mean, to contextualize, right? Because, you know, um, if, if you're going to bring up or if uh, an article or if someone's going to bring up, you know, how all these Western countries are, you know, saying that it's happening. 50. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then, then it's relevant to, to bring that up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But as as a defense of China, I think you know questionable. Um, and and yeah, I think maybe just to pause on the on the um, Uyghur issue in China. I think yeah, I think it's valid that the Italian report uh, claims that they found zero evidence of forced labor, uh, zero evidence of actual genocide, whether it's culturally or physically. Um, I think that is accurate because there hasn't been any evidence of any of those things uh, nothing concrete right even if you go really looking for for the sources of that information it's, it's just not there but i think as with everything right so with china's one child policy with china's movement to or uh, actions to you know, liberate people out of poverty and also uh, this is uh, the the uyghur situation is also part of china's war on terror right mm-hmm. um it's obviously going to have incidents of abuse, incidents of corruption, mm-hmm. incidents where people are mistreated. Yeah. So if we look at the one child policy, like in the cities, quite well actioned, adopted, so you would get a fine, right? If you were found to have, you know, more than one child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, yeah. And there were, they made exceptions for, um, I think all of, at least most of the ethnic minorities that do exist yes. in China. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say that that policy rolled out across billions of people was uniformly great and without issues right you know there were definitely actual cases of forced sterilization and again in rural areas where it's very difficult to make sure that things are implemented without corruption as far as i'm aware you know those incidents where it was possible were addressed and that's not to say though right that it was a great policy and that you know it was carried out perfectly that would be more against the hun population would have the one child because they're not an ethnic minority Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it wouldn't be extended to the uyghurs so that's Kind of yeah. interesting. Well, I think for the I think for the other ethnic minorities, I think they were allowed two. So there was still a restriction. Um yeah. but or it's I more... think it's some more. Yeah. Yeah. So really depending on their population. Um mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah, for sure. And I think in terms of talking about this as a like a genocidal thing, it, it is really important to to look at the evidence of why is it that nobody can even talk about it without accusations of being a mm-hmm. genocide denier. Like yeah. that's um, that's kind of the problem rather than, yeah, of course, we're going to have issues um, in China that I think really bringing it back to this Western imperial mindset is is the, you know, we don't, it's, it's the business of Chinese people that live there, you know, like it really, they need to sort that out. Like we have to, to sort of accept that um, other countries also have great intellectuals <laughs> that are capable of thinking and yeah, right. and it's and it's yeah, and it's again, it's like infantilization, uh, right? Right, and, exactly. And it also obscures our ability to actually get real reporting out of Xinjiang or out right. of, from Uyghurs that are on the ground. I, I've I've heard anecdotally that yes, of course, there's been you know forced 
like imprisonment or, you know, at least, you know, being forced to go into these camps and, you know, being forced to do certain things. And I'm sure there are instances of like assault that happen, right, in, in these institutions and any situation where you're, you know, you're told that you're above and beyond like people that you're looking after is, is not is not great, right? right. Um, so then, but these are obscured or not able to be reported on um, right. because of the focus on these uh, really baseless reports that are actually coming out. Yeah, so, so it actually like undermines any effort for real human rights, right? But also I think going back to that point that you made of the war and ter terror, I think that's where the whataboutism really is important because it is like all countries, well not all countries, we're all kind of like involved in the war and terror, you know, in some way. And so we, but the UK and the US have a very different approach to it than China. And that's what should be compared when we're talking about the Uyghur uh, situation really, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's definitely so much to be said about how the Western war and terror has been an absolute abject failure. Um, right. And I think we can't really do that without, because it's not like the US and the UK had all the best intentions and just, they just really messed up on the execution, right? Because they didn't understand the culture of the region and they didn't know, like, that's not what happened, right? There was a concerted effort to essentially, you know, strip that region of autonomy and resources and divide up things from a from a military standpoint as well and to increase essentially western influence right in that region um and then if we look at um all the economic benefits um of the xinjiang region and what it brings to china and you know and in, in the reporting right in the italian reporting it talks about the importance of xinjiang um as as a hub um for all sorts of logistical and you know political and economic initiatives yeah yeah exactly um yeah so that that context i think is is often left behind whereas that those considerations are often at the forefront of why governments make decisions and policies that, that they do so what you're saying is that the xinjiang xinjiang being a really strategic locate region um part of the belt and road initiative means um, two things. One, that the US may have a vested interest and the UK, whatever, may have a vested interest in destabilizing that region. And the other one is China may actually have a vested interest in stabilizing and alleviating poverty in that region because it needs to, it's such a strategic and important point part of the Belt and Road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so when, yeah, so when we look at the Western war on terror um, and its quote unquote failures, I think at a human level, of course, but at the strategic level overall for, for the US, right. um, obviously with massive human cost on the US side as well. Um, but on the strategic side, you know, was it, was it a failure? I, I don't know. I don't. Thinking about this in two ways. One is like, yes, it seems to be very successful for Theon and Raytheon, yep. <laughs> yes, all these people. And yes, no doubt they're they're a huge influence in American politics. Um, so yes, it was very successful for them. But strategically, do you see it as successful? Like how does it how is it successful for America? I I I just think that this perpetual machine of destabilization is on the just overall if you think about the, the propaganda right that the u.s mm -hmm. can use and will continue to use right think of how the war veterans 
um, have been used politically right. throughout the last 20 years or, or even longer, right? The second Iraq war, how the attacks were used to create the Patriot Act uh, amongst right. other, you know, a lot of legislation, right? Um, that really infringe on privacy and human rights of US citizens. Think of like the NSA listening in on people's conversations, uh, you know, in the US. Think of all of the right. policies that they were able to create on the back of this situation. Um, the way that they've been able to capitalize on, yeah, people's fears, people's sentiments. Um, so I think, yeah, beyond beyond the arms industry, I think politically and um, in in kind of the U.S. imperialist machine agenda, I think it's actually done a great job of you know because the same way right like you know you have to support the military you know you can't yeah. say anything negative about That's that true. it's being used to justify an ever-increasing military spending yes. military budget as well um and then you know and also i think it's shown uh the government in the us and the uk that they can engage in wars um with zero public kind of support <laughs> now it's it's kind of almost easier for them to well, in a way, well, they're, they're trying to make it as easy as they can, right, with the kind of xenophobic um, coverage and propaganda to make it as easy as they can to justify any sort of, you know, action against um, against China. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's been a net positive in terms of their ability to manipulate the situation for their own benefit to gaslight, you know, us into not really seeing the situation for what it is um, mm. and continues to pave the way. I mean, it's also not a new blueprint role. You know, they've done similar things to every other country, right, in, in South, <laughs> South America, Central America. Um, so I think it's just a continuation. And I, I, I don't, I honestly don't see, again, massive human impact, right, massive right. human toll. But uh, in terms of uh, their imperialism and in terms of the, the military industrial complex, I think it's been a great, great win for them a great success <laughs> mm -hmm. and um yeah and you're right too like because it's such a great success um and there's so it's such a sophisticated machine I guess it is like it's it is true that we're, we're often wondering well what happened to to the anti-war left mm -hmm. you know yeah and west and, and on if if this strategy didn't work for them right if they felt like it was a failure on the political messaging front too, then they won't be using the exact same tactics now against China than that they did 20 years ago, right, against for the war in Iraq, like they're just, it's the same playbook. Um, right. And I think we're obviously sensitive to it, but it's, it's very, very clear, fake, fake news, essentially, right, you know, propaganda, um, treat them, paint them as the enemy as someone that we need to, we need to crush, or we need to, you know, just because ideologically, you know, they're, they're against what we're, we're about. So, right, if they didn't feel like that was successful, then why right. use the same playbook? Um, and it's, I think, already working, so. Yeah, I think you're right. And I also think that, like, with conversations with some family members, et cetera, it's, it always strikes me as strange that, you know, you can say so many times, you can just keep repeating that the U.S. has 400 military bases surrounding China, China has one in Djibouti, that's it. And that was like to do with UN corporations. It's a completely different scenario. Um, and so, and yet when I have conversations with certain family members, it's still like, but the South China Sea and China's a bully. And it's like, well, 
I mean, even if China was a bully, like the, the I, why is it not entering the conversation that America is a bigger bully with all their 400 military bases? The internalized xenophobia, or not even internalized, but it's the xenophobia that um, is apparent in Asia as opposed to like, it's easier to, I think it's easier to believe that stuff if you're in the US and you've just never been to Asia, you've never been to China, you know what I mean? You're not Chinese, perhaps, you know, whatever. I would, I sort of understand that more, but I think like when you're in Southeast Asia and you're still affected by these narratives, that's like, that's really fascinating to me too. Um, mm -hmm. And just shows how effective it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've been talking about like what aboutism and what it is and isn't. Um, and I think it's not what aboutism when what we're bringing up actually adds valuable context where we're discussing, right? So we're not, right. It's not about saying <clears throat> China is not aggressive or a bully towards, you know, other countries in, in its in the region. Like, of course, it can be and it has been. Um, you know, they do sanctions too, right? And they they do kind of propaganda uh, condemnations, right? Um, so it's not to say that that's not happening, or it's not to direct the conversation away from that. Um, but it's to say, well, are we also recognizing, yeah, the same issues in the West? Um, and if we're not, then that's a problem, right? Because then if it's being used to justify force against China or to start a proxy war, because I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's not going to be outright war between the US and China, right? Because, you know, it's, those citizens are too valuable. Let's, let's fight this out somewhere else um, where, you know, people are less likely going to care about those bodies. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's like if you don't actually then recognize where that rhetoric is coming from, then we're going to be blindly going down the road of, you know, actual escalation um, for something more violent. Um, so I think that's why it's important to contextualize because, uh, yeah, then it's very easy to be swept up right in that in that ongoing narrative. But to go back, I don't know whether did we actually talk about the catalyst for you changing your mind from xenophobia? Like, <laughs> did, xenophobia, did we or did we just sort of get... I think I think it was honestly like a gradual evolution in you know the more that I understood where I was yeah where I was critical about my own identity and, and kind of understanding where that came from and then actually understanding that that was external <laughs> and that was cultural because of growing up in the West, understanding that at the same time as just being just generally more critical um, of the things that I was consuming. I think that just in combination was like, oh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> right. Wait, and then, and then I think, yeah, because, you know, like I said, I continue to have conversations with my own family um, about, you know, their lived experiences in China and also, you know, my parents' opinions, right, as people who moved, emigrated uh, in their, like, late 20s um, mm -hmm. and have been here now for the most part of their life versus being China. But, you know, I was born in 89, the same year that Tiananmen Square happened. Uh, right. You know, so my parents are very close to that situation and, and close to what happened after, you know, my dad is coming to the UK as a result of um, uh, Deng Xiaoping's policy in, you know, opening uh, up China, but mm -hmm. he was also the one that directed the soldiers to pull the trigger on, uh, you know, uh, in June that year. So uh, it's been very interesting talking to them about that context and they, yeah, and there's nuance there, right, in that. So, um, yeah, so I think as I've tried to be more nuanced about everything else that I've been consuming, um, luckily also apply to, to things on China and reporting there as well.
that is interesting. I mean, and also just how, so do you go back to China quite regularly? Like when was the last um, time you went back? Every few years, sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, once every few years and sometimes uh, many years have passed without me realizing that I haven't gone back yet. I mean, I definitely do try to, to understand Chinese citizens' um, opinions. Um, as and when I meet them, because I think it's it's really interesting. Um, Anything because... that's surprising to you, like really different? Um, I think, yeah, I think people definitely have different priorities <laughs> um, over there. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, well, one thing that I noticed, kind of like unrelated, but uh, you know, there's no, there's no religious morality Right. Uh, so there's no concept of religion morality as it applies to, I think, laws um, out West. Right. Like we're constantly having to fight against um, religious mor morality in terms of, you know, women's bodies or you know, people's mm -hmm. bodies or uh, our ability to to, you know, love who we love. Um, that all comes from fighting against, uh, I would say, like, yeah, religious dogma. Whereas in China, obviously there's homophobia, obviously there's mm -hmm. discrimination, but it, it's not from a religiously dogmatic place. Um, and then the racism as well, obviously. Um, it's, uh, I, I think a lot of it, some of it is stemmed from, from just um, ignorance. Um, and then, you know, but it, it, the CCP is also notoriously like anti-feminist uh, <laughs> as well. But that's so, so bizarre. Why is it anti-feminist when the whole communist you know, that whole, that really famous, like, women uh -huh. hold up half, half the, the sky. sky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because that is something yeah. that is brought up a lot. Um, but I think especially capitalist influences, um, and it's, it's still, it's, you, you can't remove yeah. 5,000 years of patriarchal um, conditioning. I mean, the idea of, like, binding your feet, it, you know, that's just, <laughs> um, that that was a, a common practice amongst, I guess, what, upper class. Yeah, and, you know, Mal, people like to say, Mao got rid of that, and blah, blah, you know, uh, but, uh, well, if you look at the CCP, right, there's no, there's no women in any um, senior positions at all. Um, I think it's a little bit better uh, on the kind of, commercial side actually like there's a lot more female uh, managers or ceos in china um yeah. but you know that's, I mean, they that's are still like a, there are there are female politicians mm -hmm. but yeah. they're just not um no senior members though yeah yeah they're not senior members and they're like i think it's like what is it a third or a quarter so not 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 equal yeah and um, you know the yeah. ccp also they have an idea of people's roles right they have an idea of what citizens role should be what their role should be so yeah they also have ideas about what women's citizens roles should be and it's uh, unfortunately getting married <laughs> and, well um, especially now if we consider that disproportionate population right like there's mm -hmm. more there's still much more men than women so if the women don't want to get married um <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay that's interesting okay so so where you are now, it's just really nuance and truth. I mean, I, that's what I'm, that's what I feel. Like once you start um, focusing on truth, you, you have to have nuance, it's impossible. Yeah, no. and I think also not getting, yeah, I think, I think even though we can aspire to be truth seeking and to be nuanced, um, mm -hmm. I think though there are still going to be places where we get stuck or yeah, places where we feel sure. personally right invested in an outcome or personally invested in a narrative so I think it's always important 
to recognize that. And but then you know it's it's honestly more to to the point of what we're saying, right? It's like it's not about us getting on a soapbox to condemn or to educate or to say. It's really more about like these are things that we are ingesting, internalizing, mm-hmm. um, and then they're Figure having discussions about, right? Yeah. So it's like you know what is the way what is the way to do that is actually helpful, <laughs> both for ourselves yeah. internally um, and in the conversations that we're having. Yeah, because I do find myself, not after having researched it, the Xinjiang thing, but I didn't believe it when it was first presented to me. You know, it's just like, it's just like the Hong Kong protest. That's the first instinct is to believe the Western narrative, because that's what I grew up with. And so it's just so much harder for me to sort of wade into it and like try to push back against my assumptions. Um, That's really, that's the only thing we can do. Although I do feel a little disheartened by your <laughs> by your analysis that um, the propaganda is working, it's very successful <laughs> for the U.S. and imperialist powers, and um, I don't know how we push back against that, really. Yeah, I mean, it's working in the sense that it's it's difficult to counter that narrative if there's just no narrative <laughs> that exists outside of it right like you know when yeah. you know, in in our research right in, in having this conversation i'm sure we both read read a lot of articles and, and try to get different sources and in doing that it was impossible honestly to to find any sort of even um additional reporting to like the italian report right that was uh, a different perspective and like i think in a lot of the major Mm-hmm. publications I saw mentioning of this report um, but it was very much framed in you know well and they say that you know there's no evidence but you know it's, it, it was one article that said it was well documented which doesn't mean true mm-hmm. right you can yeah. you can well and document actually, something that's false as well yeah I tried to to read the the report on the initial um the initial Xinjiang genocide reports or whatever and that's just it's not, I mean, it's just not, the ones that I've been able to find, there's just, it's not credible. The way that they're always sort of like referencing people who said this thing and it always comes down to the same people. There's a, yeah, but the burden of proof is on the people surely that are making the accusation of genocide because it's such a huge, it's such a huge accusation. I think that's what's sort of missing in, in the the Western conversation about it. It's such a huge accusation to say it as if it's fact. And then anyone who questions it is a genocide denier is so insane as well. Yeah. Like that's gaslighting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, well-worn tactics, right? Like it's the same right. similar situation, right? If we, you know, when people have been talking about um, the situation in Palestine and how we can support right. Palestinians, right? And then any yes. discussion of that. Anti-Semitic immediately. Mm-hmm. Music was anti-Semitism, and then, yeah. um, which also ironically increases incidence of <laughs> anti-Semitism uh, in those right. discussions as well. Um, so you know, there's, I think there's, yeah, there's a uh, good reason for people to be sensitive about that. But yeah, it's just not genuine, right? It's very right. disingenuous. And then, so I think when we come at it, or when normal people come at it ordinary people come at it from an approach of, well, I just want something objective. Um, I just want to understand, you know, what's going on. Um, And them not really having any of the resources to be able to do that. And I think, and I think it's 
partly um, easy, it's really easy because of this continued, you know, xenophobia that hasn't ever gone away. Um, obviously, it's been heightened in the last, you know, 18 months or so. But actually, I was watching a video the other day that said, you know, back in like 1066 or something, you know, there was xenophobia from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> essentially, yeah, they, they you know, when, uh, when the Christians were going on their crusades, you know, to Jerusalem or kind of further east, you know, they were coming to contact um, with, um, you know, with the Chinese empire. And then, you know, their, their uh, reasoning was, or like their explanation was, well, you know, there's no reason why this culture can be so advanced. Or there's no reason why these people <laughs> okay. um, can be so, uh, have such a rich, uh, a strong culture. It must be because of magic or aliens or <laughs> you know, something sinister, right? Black magic. So like this, this like idea of like Eastern um, Orientalism, mysticism, you know, suspicious, <laughs> uh, mysterious ways of a culture being is actually so deep ingrained, like even longer than I think what we actually realize. Um, so yeah, so they don't, they don't have to put out anything that's, you know, researched or with due diligence, right? If you think about the BuzzFeed article that won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism last year, um, mm. yeah, it was, was a, it, it was about the, the Uyghur situation in China. Um, mm. And the, um, the journalists did not visit China at all. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. They, you think they that would be important. Um, they also quoted um, that Zan's guy, right? The one that has Adrian been. Adrian Zenz. Adrian Zenz, sorry. Yeah. Uh, they mm. quoted Adrian Zenz um, as one of their main sources. But he's um, never been to Xinjiang either. No, and he's already been repeatedly discredited. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think in, in the kind of society that we're in now, right, you just don't need to do any due diligence. You don't need to. Um, uh, yeah, to, to have a well-informed argument for people right. to, to believe you, unfortunately. Um, and I think, again, it's not just about China, right? It's the, it's the way that we react to what we see um, across the board. So, yeah, unfortunately, I just think they, they are aware of that, you know? And, like, it reminds me a lot, of actually, about the way, um, you know, I think that um, the, 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 the state and the media... Um, kind of cue things up, right? Cue up the es escalation. So, you know, if we think about, uh, kind of unrelated now, but um, the, the whole critical race theory debate right. that happened in, in the States, right? Where, you know, we, they were able to politically drum up a frenzy uh, about something that wasn't taught in schools, isn't planned to be mm -hmm. taught in schools. Uh, <laughs> there's no, there's no real, yeah, there's no, I think maybe there are some states that we're talking about making sure that they talk about race more uh, in, in the curriculum, but you know, there was no concerted actual campaign to, to teach critical race theory in schools, but they were able to drum up such a frenzy in the media and, you know, uh, in, in those states where it really mattered, where then they were able to pass legislation to um, to basically in Texas, right? To, to basically say, we don't have to teach anything about Martin Luther King. We don't have to teach anything about civil rights. We don't have to teach about slavery because it makes us uncomfortable. So it's this progression and the way that they tee things up, right? right? So I, I feel like it's very similar. You know, they're teeing up um, our, uh, our fear and, mm -hmm. you know, our kind of um, aggression against China so that they can follow up with, I mean, they already have, right, with sanctions and then with, I think, further escalations um, as, as the narrative continues. Yeah, and it's like what you said about CRT, it's like there was no actual discussion of what it was exactly. 
<laughs> like it was just more about, you know, racism is such a, it's, it's a term that's so scary to people. So once you introduce those, there's specific terms, genocide, racism, anti-Semitism, anything like that, you introduce to a conversation, there's suddenly no discussion around it. Like you can't, on the mainstream media, there's suddenly mm -hmm. no discussion around those topics. Yeah, it so creates a massive chilling effective. effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's similarly right the, that that conversation and in, internally within within the Labour Party, right? It was a very, yeah. very great way to to, to silence um, any sort of calls to actually let's 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 think about you know what we're actually saying here. Um, and then similarly as well, right? Uh, there were horrific incidents of Islamophobia, real incidents recorded, right. well documented, actual real incidents of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, and I'm sure within the Labour Party too. But you know that is never that is never called into question that is never investigated right because we've created this atmosphere where xenophobia uh, where islamophobia is acceptable and deserved um and and you know and, and xenophobia as well actually yeah you're right. yeah exactly it's and on the same in the same way and then mm. um yeah and it's 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 also interesting as well because i think the case of that young woman i can't remember her name is um has come up now again because she's uh so she was groomed right by um by isis um and she left oh, the uk right. when she was 15. Yeah, um, and is she allowed back that whole conversation about that yeah so you know she recently appeared on i think tv to apologize to the whole country about being coercively you know brought to another country where she was actually also sexually assaulted um so for, for me it's like we're condemning we're condemning China for uh, for Islamophobia that we can't even prove, and this country is actively right. um, being Islamophobic against its own citizen uh, and citizens. Right? You know, she was a naturalized citizen, and you know, I'm a naturalized citizen in the UK. So, at what point, right, are we going to decide that China is such a threat that any Chinese-born nationals? Uh, get to be denaturalized because of their opinions, essentially. I mean, obviously she did a bit more than that, um, but I think, <laughs> but I think contextually, you know, we, it's why not have compassion for someone who was clearly in a very coercive situation. So I think the hypocrisy is just mind blowing. And I think it's still, I think it's still relevant to, to talk about Islamophobia because that hasn't gone away. Right. In, in right. the last 20 years since the war, Islamophobia has shot, I think, it shot up like 200 percent and then just stayed, um, stayed that, that way uh, consistently over the last 20 years. So, you know, I think it's important that we still try to tackle Islamophobia now because it's still like a massive issue, especially in the UK, in this country. Um, and also highlight the fact that, yeah, I, we see similar trends now in terms of xenophobia. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add? Hmm. Um, Quite a wide-ranging one. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think hopefully it's yeah the way that we've discussed it. Um, I think hopefully we're just encouraging more people to be not necessarily skeptical, but I guess less reactive. You know, to what to what we see. Um, I think skeptical is fair because you you do need to be skeptical about like everything that we're reading, right? It's usually like. 10 outlets reporting on, like we said, like one article, and then that article hasn't been fact-checked properly, uh, not the fake fact-checking mm -hmm. um, sort of thing. And so it proliferates and um, 
because you're gonna get like that's a thing when usually it would be like okay check your secondary sources right but in this case you could check like 10 sources and they're all quoting from the same same thing thing. yeah Yeah. so that's the problem yeah Mm -hmm. I think skepticism without in any context yeah I think skepticism without any sort of qualification is also bad right because you can also be skeptical about other people's lived experiences you can be skeptical about things that you personally disagree with um to a level where it's not actually healthy or it's not actually helpful for you to find the truth um if that makes sense um so I think for me it's yeah about not immediately reacting to Mm -hmm. a piece of news or not immediately reacting to something um and then I think yeah recognizing the danger of subscribing to to kind of western imperialist narratives we we do such a bad job of contextualizing the things that we see in the west right in terms of how it's all interconnected right so kind of thematically as we've been discussing we find it really easy to see chinese propaganda for what it is right to Mm -hmm. to call out misinformation from the ccp to call out you know abuses of human rights from the ccp like yeah they happen right there's documented cases of that you know political prisoners like the situation Mm -hmm. in hong kong we can absolutely recognize those for what they are as dangerous um, and you know clearly against its own citizens but we do not apply the same lens uh to yeah to clearly institutional issues that happen in the UK and the US and other Western countries, right? We we chalk those down to you know individual acts of violence or we chalk those down to, well, it's just an isn't just an education thing or it's like, oh, it's just a cultural thing. Like, no, there are systematic issues, there are systematic threads that run through um, these situations that we need to, to recognize. And then because without recognizing it, it's very hard to dismantle it or to actually tackle things at the root right if we say and I think this kind of just maybe brings it back nicely right if we say that this country and the U.S. right that we are committed to anti-racism that we don't believe that the violence against the Asian community is is warranted and like you know if we believe that you know we should stop that then if we really believe that and really uh, we really want to sort it out at the root then it is also on us to recognize where institutions are like the media and the state are you know, promoting xenophobia and to recognize that within ourselves and to recognize that when it's happening and to, to understand that, yes, it is, it, there is a imperialist agenda that is just really not discussed. And I think even, mm-hmm. even saying it like that, I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, you know, that's so serious. Like, you know, you're talking about like, like, you're talking about like Darth Vader type. Actually, like a lot of these articles that I read on The Guardian and the, the BBC, when they try to discredit someone, they call them anti-imperialists as a <laughs> criticism. Oh my God. <laughs> it's very interesting, especially around the reporting of Syria, you know, like the mm-hmm. chemical weapons and how that's, con- that's just been debunked, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so that stuff. That's the funny thing is that they're actually very clear on the imperialist agenda <laughs> in a way, but it's, and because it's never discussed, it's not considered a bad thing, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think anytime we see a group of people that may be oppressed, right, in, in other regions, I think obviously it's important that we should care about it because I also believe that uh, it's, I think any, any individual group struggle is, is separate, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we do live in a very globalized um, world now. Um, you know, I believe that the, the functions of the state and especially um, 
the instruments of the state, like the police or the army, um, you know, I think they all, a lot of them serve very similar functions across the world, uh, regardless of what government is in power, right? You know, I think we often see police being utilized um, to enforce property rights and to also brutalize its own citizens. I really don't see police used in any other way in most uh, in most countries, in most states. This is not to say that, you know, we can't have an opinion or that we, we shouldn't care about things that are the struggles of other places in fact I think there's a lot of commonality in our struggles but it's finding what practical ways you can actually help um, which is very limited I think honestly Um, yeah I think it is very limited but that does make me that did you know you're you're talking about the police made me think about the report in China again because one of the funny things that I I don't think it was in this report but it was in someone else's um, account of China and their relationship to the police being very different from ours where it's like they can call the police and be like you know the electrical is not working my apartment (laughs) (laughs) which is such a different mindset but you know there's there's also situations where the police ask to invite you for tea and that means uh, they want to have a conversation about your political activities and how you should not do that again if you want, don't want to be disappeared. So, right. yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot there's, of there's differences. Huge scale there. <laughs> I mean, I think if we're thinking about what practical things that we can do, right? I think there's, yeah. we obviously, especially in, in Western societies, we do have some, um, we do have some um, influence over the state right into the decisions that they make and into um into the policies so? that we have some, i mean i think some. like talking about the uk at least like i guess in maybe in scotland do you think do you feel more hopeful <laughs> i think there's some right i mean look if if you know that uh votes to um to say that yeah there's a there's genocide occurring in in china oh, yeah. right <clears throat> i think if a lot of people wrote to their MPs to say that they disagreed with that vote, then maybe it would have gone a different way. So, you know, I, don't know. I mean, I sense. don't know. I mean, I was, you know, with the uh, Wafia that we um, interviewed, he mm-hmm. did try to create a campaign around that. Mm-hmm. But like, like, you're right. It, there are a few things, you know, they announced it on Thursday, they had it on like, Wednesday. So there's not enough to really, like gather everybody. Up. So that you know, so there's stuff like that. But I did find that when I emailed my MP, you just got a like a cut and paste generic where it's so clear they didn't read your email. And then they're just (laughs) like, they're like agreeing with you while saying Mm -hmm. it's like, you know what I mean? It's just a cut and cut and paste. They they say genocide. They don't actually even read that you're saying it's not genocide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I, this is not the time and place to, um, to compel people to, you know, have a revolution or anything like that. But I think, you know, the more interactions that we have with our politicians that result in, you know, yeah, being dismissed or being brushed off or like not feeling like we've been heard, right? Because we don't live in a direct democracy. Um, you know, we outsource all of our decision-making to these elected officials, um, which I think has kind of gone to, yeah, it's, it's gone to an extent where, you know, we actually are, don't feel, um, invested in any of the decisions that they make so i think you know the more interactions that we have where we're recognizing that there's massive limitations to what they can do and in terms of what they'll actually listen to as well um then i think that's an opportunity for us to think about well what are the alternatives you know why do we not live in a direct democracy 
uh, why why do we have a system where in the UK and the US, right? It's just a two party system um, that doesn't actually work for anyone. <laughs> so um, you know, for me, that's much bigger and that's more much more impactful than you know pressuring our government right now to like either create sanctions or lift sanctions you know um into into other pressuring our government that we don't trust to in you know to look out for our well-being (laughs) to you know sanction another country on the the well-being of their people yeah figure out how unlikely figure out how they can work for us first right yeah Um, and and yeah notice the ways that they're obviously not working for us uh, and then thinking of ways to change that so yeah well thank you so much for this conversation I really appreciate it and like like you said like hopefully our own vulnerabilities or expressions of vulnerable vulnerabilities around this subject you know it's just like an encouragement for more discussion and self-reflection yeah I hope so (laughs) thank you so much The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's That's it. it. Yeah. (laughs)